When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, diehard Tom Cruise fan, fan for life. I'm a fanboy, Paul. I gotta say, man, I went and saw Top Gun. I'm glad you saw it. I've heard amazing things. I wanted to see it this week. I just was like another crazy work week, although things did lighten up a little bit Thursday. But, you know, it's just like when you're on deals, they don't care what you want to see in movies <laughs> or whatever. So in the theaters. But I wanted to say I did see Hustle on Netflix last night, which is Adam Sandler movie. Oh, about the basketball. basketball. It like takes place oh, in I Philadelphia. Hear it's, it's so good. I hear it's amazing. It was really amazing. I mean, you know, thinking back to Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, SNL, and even his comedy albums, where he is now, he's like serious and he has he's a good actor. range. and. He's an amazing actor. I mean, the movie is just incredible. And so I recommend you check it out. My sister was just telling me about it and I was so confused what she was talking about. But I do now remember the trailer and hearing all the hype around the movie. But yeah, no, I'll check that out. So LeBron's a producer and literally, I want to say there were 40 different NBA really? cameos, <laughs> like NBA players slash commentators. Like literally, I mean, it was so realistic. And that's, but not overdone. It wasn't like, hey, I'm this NBA star. It was literally just like very real and authentic, but just a great movie overall. And I don't think it's breaking new ground per se, but it did it so well, like the underdog story, find a diamond in the rough, polish him up, get him into the NBA. Like that was just, it was a very cool, very cool movie. I'm excited. I'm excited. And it took place in Philly. I love it. Okay. That's on my list then. I've got now something to watch. When I was out with COVID last week, I basically watched everything. Everything from Stranger Things to I went on a Tom Cruise binge in preparation of Top Gun, which is one of our main topics for today, but we'll get to later. But I watched Color of Money. I watched Eyes Wide Shut. I watched all the Mission Impossibles except for Mission Impossible 2. I watched Top Gun and then I went solo to the movie with my bag of peanut M&Ms, and what a ride, man. That movie is so freaking good. Peanut M&Ms, I think, are the best m M&M. and Either that or peanut butter m M&M. and Pretzel, but the pretzel regular M&Ms, M&Ms, bro. Those are the Oh, best. yeah, for sure, if you can find them. If you them. can find I mean, them. <laughs> that's like, you know, the unicorn. But I like peanut butter, too. I mean, you gotta, it's a lot. But they're good. <laughs> they're good. It was great. I felt like I felt like sick after it, but you know, it was great. I was talking to some friends who are fans of the show and they were talking about our Tom Cruise episode, the tribute episode, and they were blown away at the fact that I hadn't seen any of the Mission Impossibles. They're like, <laughs> Where have you been lit? Are you on planet Earth? Like, we're with Mesh on this. How have you not seen a Mission Impossible movie? But anyway, you know, now it, it's a thing. It I does blow my even... mind that yeah. now you won't still won't see it. <laughs> Speaking of 
someone who became a star, not necessarily overnight, Camille Vasquez, Johnny yeah. Depp's lawyer. I'm, you know, like I'm very excited by this story because she did very well. She got a great result for her client. Uh, she was promoted from associate to partner. She kind of became a celebrity overnight. And this is like, you know, when you're in law school, at least when I was in law school, there's kind of a, a fork you hit where you have to decide, are you going to litigate or are you going to do deals and corporate deals? And not that you can't do both, but basically law firms make you choose because, you know, once you start learning one skill set, they don't really have a lot of, you know, typically if you start doing litigation and arguing cases and writing briefs, you aren't going to do corporate work. And if you want to do corporate deal work, you're probably not going to be arguing cases and doing litigation. So, you know, but in the truest sense, when you think of pop culture, when you think of lawyers, or at least when I growing up thinking of lawyers, you know, there's lawyer TV shows and lawyer movies, it's always a litigator, right? It's always the person sort of like the Atticus Finch arguing in front of the courtroom, performing, say, you know, I object or your honor or you know, reading instructions to the jury, whatever. So that is the cool thing about being a litigator that sort yeah. of drew me to it. But I ended up, I wanted to go into business and run companies eventually. So I decided to do transactional work. But for Camille, you know, she's a defamation litigator. She's at a great firm and she's looks like she's at the beginning of a stellar career. So good for her. And dude, yeah, really good for her. She's going to be on this Discovery Plus series about the sequel to the first season about the Johnny versus Amber, you know, the whole drama and trial. And I think the other thing about this that's really progressive or unique is in a lot of law firms, the junior, I mean, she's not junior per se, but, you know, she's maybe eight or 10 years out of law school. Normally, the people that get the credit at law firms are like people who've been doing legal work for 30 years, 40 years. And so it's great for Camille that she was able to shine through. Yeah, I mean, fantastic. And it seems to be she's become a fan favorite, obviously on TikTok and stuff. Like some of the stuff was a little annoying that I saw on TikTok. I think other people have come out and said they try to make it more. TikTok was making this like beautiful romance between her and Johnny Depp and look at the interaction between them. And obviously TikTok takes things to a whole other level, but not everyone is a fan though, Paul. I mean, there's that Stanford law professor recently came out, Michelle Dauber. Am I saying her last name correctly? I think so, yeah. She blasted Vasquez after the trial ended. And it was basically, I guess the point she was making was that this was, she's essentially enslaved to the male dominant lawyer and the case that she took on. And obviously she's not a fan of her and what she did. And it was like a, not the best representation for women. Now, granted, I also read that she is close or at least friendly with Amber Heard as well. I don't really know how to take that. Who, the, the lawyer? The Stanford yeah. Law Professor? Yeah, there was like something in the article I read. They have a picture together and there's some like potential bias. But I mean, everyone's entitled to their opinion and, and how they see the case and, and what it means for moving forward with women and, and cases like this. So I guess not everyone is a fan. Exactly. And I mean, who can please everyone, right? I would say... And that's the thing about our society, you know, you should be able to sort of have your own opinion and you don't necessarily have to agree with everything everyone says. And that doesn't mean that people are good or bad or evil, right? Like we should be able to find common ground or at least appreciate where someone's coming from, even if we don't agree with them. Sure. But yeah, so the Stanford law professor, Michelle Dauber, I think you basically summarized it correctly. She is an Amber Heard supporter, which I didn't know, but that would give it some more context. She's saying you're doing the powerful man's bidding right. Right, by going right. against your own kind. And what you don't realize, the irony is you don't realize that you're kind of a pawn in this whole thing. Right. And you should be smarter and be more aware. And, I, you know, I don't 
listen, lawyers have to defend their clients vigorously and advocate for them. So if she were on Amber Heard's team, it'd be interesting, right? In a parallel universe, right? If she were on Amber Heard's team and she won, what would people say? Would they say, would they be critical or would they be, is it just the people are fans of Johnny Depp that they love her or, or is there something else at play? I think she did a great job. She did her job, right? And she did it well and she won. And when it comes to the court and law, like the jury makes the decision, you present the case. One person won in this case. She presented a really good case and she won the case. And I think that should be commended, whether someone was saying, well, you know, a pawn in this whole thing. Again, everyone's entitled to their opinion. Obviously, their strategy with these things. Like, I would assume that they wanted a female attorney as part of the team, just like we think about a lot of times when you think about strategy. Like, when you're appealing to, they probably sat there and said, we probably don't want, like, an entire team of, like, white male lawyers representing Johnny Depp. This is purely speculation, but generally speaking, firms, especially when something's a public trial, right, you want to create a narrative. You realize there's an element of theatrics there when you're dealing with Johnny Depp and you have a five-week trial for defamation. So sure, I mean, part of this is how is this going to be perceived? But let's not have the fact that there is a narrative and maybe some rational reason for her to be that choice based on her gender. Let's not let that undermine the fact that she did a great job advocating for her client, which she's supposed to do. And in theory, you know, you don't get to pick who your clients are necessarily. So she did a great job. Good for her. Awesome result. Before we move on, what is your favorite movie that depicts like a trial, an attorney? I've got my pick, but like where obviously like with the best like closing argument or like an exciting movie that was all about a trial. Oh, that's well, you're catching me all on the spot here. <laughs> that was purposely done. I got to go. Liar, liar. <laughs> I didn't even have that on my list. <laughs> I think liar, liar, poor. Uh, if not liar, liar. Great movie. Maybe my cousin Vinny. <laughs> I really like The Judge with Downey Jr. Great movie too. But I would have to go liar, liar. Oh my God, you, you said movie. I didn't even have any of those off the top of my head. Mine was A Time to Kill with Matthew McConaughey. Oh, like, sure. What a movie, man. Yeah, they deserve to die and I hope they burn in hell. Yeah, yeah. Sam Jackson. <laughs> Sam yeah. Jackson. And then... Oh, yes. Matt, he's also really good in Lincoln Lawyer. I, I mean, was about to say Lincoln Lawyer is the other one and Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, is a show now. Lincoln Lawyer is a show. It's a. It's supposed to be really it is. good. It is a show. But Jim Carrey and Liar Liar, when he, you know, he invalidates the prenup, he can't tell a lie. He's got to win the case. I mean, that was... So good. They don't make yeah. him like, man, we need more lawyer movies. Bring them back. I would love to see a lawyer movie. Hey, better call Paul the movie, right? <laughs> Better Call Paul, the documentary that gets turned into a movie starring Paul. I would. Who would play Paul? Who would you want to play you in a movie? I would have to play myself. Honestly, that's kind of that's the that's the deal. If not, I don't know. Maybe I would say Riz Ahmed. Man, Riz Ahmed could play you. Yeah, he. I mean, Studley guy, great actor. We could come up with a short list. I think it would be me. But <laughs> if it weren't me, um. Maybe Matthew McConaughey? Yeah, may have. Well, I mean, he's, he's yeah. <laughs> he's a good lawyer. Matthew, Matthew McConaughey is Paul Sarker in Better Call yeah. Paul. <laughs> he can do it. He, he gave an impassioned speech to Congress this week. Um, he did. Well done. I mean, a well-presented well yeah. speech. Well-presented. All right, let's take a little quick break, and then we'll get back on the Roku and what's going on with Roku and Netflix. All right, Paul, Roku, Netflix, 
What's happening? Tell us what's going on there. So uh, very interesting. If you have, <laughs> assuming you you know watch streaming media or like have a smart TV, you know what Roku is because they make devices, TVs. They have a channel store. They're a distribution platform for basically ad supported content and other pay content, but basically they're an app distribution platform. They have 60 million active users per month. And they actually were initially founded by Netflix as kind of like a spinoff in 2007. They were spun off. Really? Because Reed Hastings didn't want to have a content company and be a distributor because he realized at the time when Netflix was starting out, they needed to be sort of distribution agnostic so they could get deals with all the device manufacturers, Apple, Amazon, video game consoles, whatever. He didn't want to have a horse in that race because he was primarily a content company. But fast forward 15, 20 years later, basically Netflix, which is a premier content company, their stock is getting hammered. No question about it. Goldman just downgraded their stock to a sell, even though it's already fallen like 60%, 70%. So Rough. that's not great. They need to make a move. There's talk that they're exploring an acquisition of Roku, which would basically put them more competitively positioned with Apple and Amazon because Apple is a content company, right? They have Apple TV Plus. They just won Best Picture and they have great TV shows like The Morning Show and C and tons of other shows. And they also make devices, right? They have Apple TVs in however many homes. And so they can promote their own stuff on their devices and in their app stores. Amazon has... Prime Video, and they also have the Fire Stick, so they have devices and they make content. Netflix is just a studio right now, but if they buy Roku, then they'll have that sort of device platform. So there's some advantages, right? Because if you have a Roku device and Netflix owns them, maybe they can promote the Netflix search results on the home screen, or you know, maybe they can preload their content on the home screen. So when you first turn on your Roku TV or use your Roku remote, you'll see Netflix content, which is a plus, but there's probably also downsides. The other, I think, natural synergy is what they call it when big companies merge is Netflix does not have an ad model right now. And Roku, you know, as an advertising supported streaming platform, they are very good at selling in and monetizing advertising. So Maybe it's a natural fit rather than Netflix starting from scratch and building an advertising business. Maybe you buy something that has an established one and you add it into your own ecosystem. So that's another potential plus. Of course, it does make things a little bit more competitive with content manufacturers because maybe Apple or Amazon is, I mean, they were already competing with Netflix. It's not like they weren't, but maybe they'll be less receptive to doing device deals with Netflix now. I don't know. But it seems like Netflix is at the point now where brand recognition, everybody knows what Netflix is. It'd probably be different if they did this like way earlier in their career, which he made the right move not to do that. But at this point now, like you cannot launch a platform without Netflix as an app, right? Like why would you do that? Right. It's probably at a point where they feel like they have enough leverage and they have to take some risks right now. Um, and it's a risk. Well, it's not just pay. it's not just not having the app. It's also like the terms of those deals. Right, right, like, right, right, right. Revenue right, right. shares, and placement. So there could be other things, like, sure, it would be nonsensical to have an app without Netflix, but maybe you try to drive harder. Maybe the negotiations are a little bit more tense and they're concerned about protecting themselves versus you. Maybe there's data sharing issues. There's a lot of issues that I negotiate on when I'm doing these AVOD deals or fast deals or whatever, where it's not necessarily about being on the platform because that helps everyone. You want to have as many eyeballs and as much content as you can. But sometimes there's other factors that could be 
at play and maybe they'd be disadvantaged. I mean, sometimes device deals are hard to get done, even though everyone generally wins. But I would say that to me, being a sort of casual, and you're more of a business guy than I am, but to me, sometimes you see companies that when their stock is struggling, they need to announce something big, right? They need to swing for the fences. They need to make a big move. And this could be something like that. Like, you know, Reed Hastings, Ted Sarandos, they're like, okay, we, we've been making great content. It hasn't moved the needle because the market is much more competitive than it was five, 10 years ago. So we can't just dominate. We're playing with major competitors with assets and resources and talent. So it's just harder now to dominate streaming the way they did before. So maybe this is like them saying, we need to change it up. We need to make a big splash. They need to get Wall Street back to be like, we love Netflix. Because right now, Wall Street managers, fund managers are not excited about Netflix, hence why the stock price is where it's at. And again, a lot of moves are made in the short run to pump the stock up, whether someone does a stock split or a stock buyback, or you announce some big product. In this case, for Netflix, you know they're hoping that this announcement makes analysts and managers look at it and be like, okay, I can see the value here potentially upside over the next like, you know, four to five years. We'll see how it plays out. You know, it's interesting. And this is a question, it's not really our lane, but it might be yours. So, you know, I took econ in college and we always talked about, you know, this markets are efficient. It's a theory, but there's this theory that markets are efficient. They price in information. How can markets be so wrong, right? If, if six months ago, people thought, Netflix was worth $700 a share. <laughs> and now they don't think it's worth 150. I mean, how could things change that much? People had to know inflation was coming around the bend. People had to know that streaming was competitive. So I don't know how things could change so quickly, but maybe markets aren't efficient. Uh, I guess one would say market is efficient because it was inefficient during the last two years with all quantitative easing and the government printing money essentially to inflate asset prices. And then when a stock corrects, that is the market being efficient and pricing it where it should be. Sometimes it's oversold and then people kind of buy into it again. You know, it's an example that we talked about last time where Warren Buffett bought into Paramount Global because he sees it as this is an asset that's priced well versus like Netflix. Maybe now people are starting to see, okay, this is a price where the value might make sense now versus before where it was just overly inflated, like way, way too expensive from a stock in terms of like a valuation perspective, not exactly the stock price, but from a valuation perspective, like this thing is just right. overshot. It does not make sense for the amount of it. Because people are presuming, if you think it's worth 700, I guess that it means you think it's gonna continue growing and like priced for perfection. Now, when they don't think that, even though the company might not fundamentally be that different, it's the future expectation of what it can do that people are less enthused about. Yeah, it could be one of those things where, let's say the stock price is at 700, just using like, again, arbitrary numbers, but like stock price is at 700, that's where it could, that's where it should be going in five years, but it got there in like two years. Um, it's it's overpriced now. And so then it corrects, and then maybe in five years from now, it should be at 700 and grows into that valuation. So I was listening to a interesting podcast about how people view Apple, like where Apple has seen a value because their supply chain, their operations and their ability to print money and be profitable is so efficient, yet they have not really released a new product in a really long time. The last product they released was AirPods. The innovation's not there, but from like a supply chain efficiency and printing money, it is there. And so the, the stock price is where it's at. Could it go higher if they did introduce a new product and like where could it go from there? So I think for Netflix, it's kind of the same thing where they are not really printing the money that people want them to print because subscriber growth is like hitting some type of 
wall. And so they now need to innovate and do something different that could potentially grow the company even more. Right. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I'm actually, I know this isn't, I love the Apple Watch. I'm like, I can't even imagine having. They're cool, man. I, I don't have one, but it's cool. Like, it's cool. And like, honestly, even the updates, like, obviously, Apple just had their their whole conference and there are some cool things in there. There's a joke on Twitter. It's incremental versus revolutionary. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it keeps sure. us on it to buy it. Like, we're still going to use it. Someone said <laughs> after that. As we're sitting here, I'm surrounded by Apple <laughs> yeah. I got like my laptop, my headphones, AirPods. my watch, my phone, yeah. <laughs> everything. I'm a Reed Hastings fan. I think what he's done is amazing. I think what he's done is given us like, without Reed Hastings and doing something like House of Cards, we wouldn't have all this amazing content now that people are producing. No, people subscribe to everything now. People subscribe to news. People subscribe to Peloton. People subscribe to music. I mean, he kind of like changed the game. I don't know if you remember Columbia House where you subscribed and you would get a certain amount of CDs. Like they'd give you like 13 CDs for like a dollar. No, and then you'd have to keep buying a couple every month. Yeah, that was way back in the day. But <laughs> subscription, it's a good business. If it, you can it, grow. If you can grow. That's that's the thing. The churn is what gets Wall Street scared. Like right now, subscription businesses, content subscription businesses is not in favor. So can they innovate? And I guess we'll see here. But um, let's take a quick break, and then we'll get back to our main topic again is Top Gun, Maverick. We'll get into some copyright issues they're getting into. Be right back. Okay, Paul, our main topic for this week, Top Gun Maverick, copyright issues, Paramount. They're being sued for one of the biggest movies in the year, $600 million in the box office. What is going on? Why is there a lawsuit happening to our boy Tom Cruise's beautiful, beautiful film, one of the best movies I've seen in a long time? What is happening, Paul? Well, a couple things at play. So Top Gun, the first movie, 1986 movie, was based on this article written by Ehud Yone called Top Guns. He wrote it in 1983, 1986, Top Gun comes out. At the time, Paramount did a deal with the author for exclusive film rights to that article. So they make a movie which is essentially based on that article, and it was all good. He got credited. There was probably some compensation there. All good. Then, at some point, according to the plaintiff, which is his, I believe, wife and son, because the original author has passed away, they claim that they sent a notice of termination to Paramount, effective June 2020, saying, okay, hey, that grant of rights to make films based on this article, that's over. We're terminating it. You want to do anything else? You got to come negotiate with us. Apparently, according to the complaint, Paramount ignored this mm. and moved forward with Top Gun Maverick. And now they're suing. Initially, they're saying we want an injunction. But in reality, I think that's just something you throw in. I mean, I think what they really want is they want as much money as possible. Sure, sure. Which is you want this movie, the more it makes, the bigger their potential windfall is. And so that's basically the summary of the complaint. Now, there's a lot going on here because let me give you the sort of legal background on this and the copyright. So in 1976, Copyright Act, Congress basically said that authors should get a second bite at the apple. If you create something and you sell it or license it, you should be able to, after 35 years, terminate that or your heirs, your spouse, your heirs, if you're if you're dead, 
and then try to have a new renegotiation. And the thinking is that if you sell something that's super valuable early on in your career, when you don't have a lot of leverage, you may not get full freight for it. So in this case, Top Gun built a very successful movie and then an even more successful sequel. And I don't know what they got paid for the initial grant of rights, but it probably wasn't that much. It was 1980s, right? So no. It, it, yeah, 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 yeah. Not in the seven-figure, eight-figure no, range, no. I assume. Yeah. So Congress says authors should be able to get a second bite at the apple because markets change and we don't want... The, there is an exception, right? So copyright assignments can be terminated. And a, a license can be terminated and a copyright assignment... So you can't terminate assignments by will. So if you leave, if the guy died and in his will said, Paramount, you have the film rights to Top Gun. Sure. He couldn't terminate that. The other thing you can't terminate is a work for, is something is commissioned as a work for hire. Because in that, the, the idea is that if you're an employee working for a studio or a publisher or a comic book company and they pay you and they give you an office and like supplies and a computer to create stuff and you create stuff in the scope of your employment, they should own it. And so a work for hire can't be terminated. It's owned by the company commissioning it from the moment it's created. And there's no argument here that the initial article was a work for hire because the guy was an author. He wrote it, Paramount liked the article, and they decided to make a movie about it. It's not work for hire. Right. Otherwise, if it's not work for hire and it's not in a will, you basically have the ability to terminate. And the timing on that is basically there's a 35-year clock, mm. essentially from when you do the deal. So you do the grant of rights. If the grant of rights includes the right to publish the work or publication, then it's basically 35 years from when that work comes out or 40 years from the date of the earlier of 35 or 40 years from the date of the initial grant. But if there's no right of publication, then it's just 35 years. So doing the math, if they did their deal in 1984, then the termination rights would have kicked in starting in 2019, right, 35 years later. And you have to supply notice. You can't supply it more than 10 years in advance, and you have to give them at least two years' notice. Mm. So they could have sent the notice as early as 2000, depending on when the deal was done, as early as 2009 saying, hey, starting June 2020 or 2019, your copyright's terminated. I don't know when they sent the notice, but that has to be filed at the copyright office. Like That notice of termination has, is public record. Right. So anyone, you or I, could we could look it up right now. Yeah, because it's not that you can just ignore it, right? It's like, oh, we didn't get it in the mail. It's public record. Right. If you follow all the procedural requirements, it's public record. If you send the notice but then don't file it with the copyright, that could be defective notice. And that would be, I don't know why you would do that right. because you're, you're going through the trouble of terminating. Why, why wouldn't you follow all the steps? So Paramount, apparently, this is according to what I'm reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, they disregarded the notice, and they went ahead and released the movie and did all this fanfare without papering any sort of extension or new deal with the family. Yikes. But their position now is that the film was planned to be released before COVID, and so by the time the effective date of the termination, it was already done. Ah, interesting. They're saying the work was substantially completed by the time we got this notice. So if we want to do Top Gun 3, sure, we'll have to do a deal with them. But we got this in before the deadline. That's what they're saying. But that's a factual question. And that's the risk, right? The risk is that they can get a judge to say, okay, well, how do we know? There's a way to find that out. If you go through Paramount's records and production logs and budgets Oof. and look at you know when the film was actually made, when was it in the can? 
You can look at scripts. You can look at all kinds of. Wow. That's got it. That's that's discoverable. But there is totally an issue of fact, which is when was the movie finished? Because if it wasn't finished until 2021, right, 20, right, right. You know, whatever, they were still tinkering or working on it, rewriting it, reshooting it. That's an issue because if the termination notice was effective and it really was June 2020 and they didn't finish the movie until after that, then they technically are infringing the author's copyright and they should have done a deal. And in this case, the family has more leverage because this is a blockbuster hit and they need to like, probably I would assume just settle, right? Like, okay, what do you want? Oh yeah. It's good. Yeah. Probably. Uh, it depends on how strong their case is, right? Because if the movie was absolutely 100% locked before the effective date of the termination. So if they finished it, let's say May of 2020, right? they might not settle. They might say, fight us on it. There's no question that it was, but it's gray enough where I think they probably will settle. I don't know when they locked the movie. At some point, they probably realized that they were going to push it to 22 and they may have kept working on the movie. So I don't know. And that's purely factual. So we don't know, but it would likely settle. And what I would say is this situation happens and people come out of the woodwork, people terminate copyrights. This is something, it's not like you have to jump through that many hoops. If you create a copyrighted work and you license it, you can terminate that license. So you can do it in music and in other areas. And there's a lot of attorneys that go through copyright owners, like lists of copyright owners and look for what could potentially be about to expire and try to get them to send termination notices because it's at least a way to make some more revenue. But what I would say is like, if something like this were to happen back in my Marvel days, if we got a notice like this, it would have been sent to the general counsel's office that morning, right? And there would have been sort of closed door meeting of the heads of legal and maybe the studio or whatever, creative head, legal head, maybe someone from marketing. And it would have been like a SWAT team, special ops type meeting. And they would have quickly laid out their options. What's the risk? Is this legitimate? Let's research it. Let's vet it. They would have researched it, looked into it and decided, do we do a deal? Do we tell them it's frivolous? Either way, they would have within the day probably made a plan of action as to either dig deeper or to work out some sort of deal. But it would have been very unlikely for someone to release a film with this floating out there because the risk you run is that the film, if it makes a billion dollars, you have this enormous claim that maybe it's frivolous, but it's still, the dollars are so big. It's like, why would you take the risk? Just do the deal. Yeah, and like, let's assume that it is gonna be a billion dollar movie given the trajectory of this movie right now. And if I'm that family, I'm one, I want money. Like, this is the biggest movie. This is based on the story that my father wrote. Maybe it's not. I haven't seen Maverick. And maybe it has nothing to do with the article. I don't know. I mean, that's another thing that Paramount could say. I don't know if they said that yet, but they could have said, we're not taking any inspiration from the article. This is entirely based on our movie. It's riskier. Ah, uh, so wait, you're, you're saying that the movie is based on the previous movie, not on the article. I'm saying that's a tough argument to make. It's a tough argument to say it's not derivative of the original article. Right. That's something that for a jury or a judge to decide, it's very fact-based. And like, I wouldn't want to be in, if that's the case, if that's the situation they're in, they're probably going to settle because it's very hard to say it had nothing to do with the original article. And, and, and wouldn't you want to settle? Because let's now assume that they're going to make another one. This was a, such a blockbuster hit. It, everybody wants to see Tom Cruise again as Maverick. Everybody wants to see now Miles Teller as Rooster. They make a great pair, a great team. He could potentially take off the franchise. Like, If I'm the family, would you have potential rights for those future movies as well if you negotiated that? 
Yeah, if you own, yeah, sure. I mean, that's the deal, right? Like you can you can negotiate a deal, but what I'm saying is the minute this notice hit Paramount's desk, whether it was 2018, 2017, 2016, whatever it was, it's very odd that they didn't take it seriously at the time because that's the time to say, hey, we would like to extend this or do another deal. Let's do a two-picture deal. Let's give us options. You'll get a payment. You know, before the movie comes out and it's this enormous hit, you can make them a, an offer right. that they probably right. take that's like a million bucks, two yeah. million bucks, three, whatever it is. Yeah. You can have the negotiation. Now you're in this jump ball situation where your exposure is a lot higher. Yeah. It's so basically it never should have happened. This as a headline shouldn't be, you know, it should be just be talking about like, Top Gun is one of the biggest movies of the year, period. I mean, I'm not second guessing them. They have good lawyers. They have good business affairs. Yeah. They made a decision, most likely, that the, either the film was done before the deadline and right. then there is no case and they're going to win or they're in some sort of settlement talks. But I don't know. I mean, listen, and I've said this a couple of times. Like, you can get sued even if you do nothing wrong, right? Like it happens. When the dollars are that big, people are going to be opportunistic. Sure. But the timing lines up. Right, this is right in that window where they could have terminated, and if they did, there's not that much more they need to do. So, like, you can terminate. It's not like you have to demonstrate that anyone did anything wrong or violated your rights or anything. You just have once the clock hits that time, you can terminate. And if they did, and Paramount didn't finish the movie, it's not a, it's not a good place to be. I just think that given the risk here, it probably hindsight being 2020 makes sense to work this out well ahead of time paper it, do it into a deal, do an extension or whatever, because you have this floating out there. The exposure is insane. Yeah. And this movie continues to just make that money. It's printing money. I'm going to go watch it again. Paul, you got to go see it. It's just freaking amazing. Yeah. No, that's the thing. I mean, Tom Cruise probably could have like gone to the guy's birthday party. <laughs> yeah. or something. Like, oh, yes, you, know, you know what? We're going to give you like lifetime tickets to any Tom Cruise, whatever you at the time before this lawsuit was filed, they could have negotiated something. And that's the thing. Can you imagine? That's what they, it's like Tom Cruise agrees to show up to the next three birthday parties of yours and you can ride in his plane <laughs> once. That's the deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean like. Or I get to run with Tom Cruise. That's that's basically, I would take that all day. Yeah, something like that. Maybe you get a credit in the film. Like there's an opportunity to do a deal, but their leverage, if they have a good case, is extremely high now. Well, let's see what happens. Um, uh, it's very fascinating. Well, that's our show for this week, folks. Paul, again, schooling as always. Go watch Top Gun, Maverick, and then, you know, potentially go watch uh, Matthew McConaughey as Better Call Paul, Paul Sarker. I haven't agreed. I mean, <laughs> if someone were to play me, he'd be on the list, but I don't know that that's a full. I need to think more about that. I need to think so. Awesome, man. Uh, well, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. And Better Call Paul the Podcast on Instagram. Right, Paul? Yep. Better Call Paul the Podcast. This episode is edited and produced by Valentino Rivera, Marco Seiler, Gonzalez, with assistant producer Justin Sanchez and assistant research producer Haas Nasser. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone.